recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia on TalkShoe. I've been having um, technical problems with TalkShoe. Tonight, David, who has managed many of these programs for me, has come through for me again. And he was able to get into the TalkShoe page with my password without a problem, evidently, and and, um, start his program. For the last three weeks, I've been having this problem from my home internet service. And for two of those weeks, for the past two weeks, I've been able to connect using my telephone as a hotspot. Now I can't even do that. I can connect to TalkShoe. I can do anything I want on TalkShoe until I go to start a program. And it's preventing me. I can't do it. It, it um, The wheels just spin and spin and spin and nothing happens. If I were paranoid, I would think that it was a conspiratorial plot against me. I don't need TalkShoe to broadcast programs, to record programs. I like to maintain TalkShoe as another public outlet. Christogenia.org is a... Um, has a standalone chat room and four streaming radio servers of its own. So I, I may have to, um, I may be forced to consider just doing these programs from Christogenia and running all four of my streaming audio servers during live programs. Right now I'm running two, and right now there are about 20 listeners connected, and, and and I'm sure that there will be more than that on TalkShoe, except that since I can't get to my TalkShoe page, I can't see the chat, but that's okay. It doesn't matter, and, and I'm sure more people will um, connect to Christogenia as the program commences. I'm accustomed to having, I, I guess, about 30 or 35 live listeners. Uh, I find... Um, while live listeners are, are a wonderful thing and, and people communicate and, and and have fellowship in the Christogenia chat room, the podcasts are really what, what where where the um the value is because they're downloaded sometimes hundreds and sometimes many thousands of times from my website. And and when it, well when they're downloaded thousands of times from my website I'm happy but I'm also humbled. And, and praise Yahweh for the success of my ministry. So aside from the technical problems, here we are with the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, part 2. I don't know how many more weeks it's going to take me to finish these last chapters of Luke. I really didn't expect to go into chapter 22, to, for that to go into two parts, but it obviously did. And I was afraid I wouldn't have enough material in, in part two for a whole program, but typing the notes all day today, I, I really had no problem. So here we are, chapter 22, part two. What we're going to cover a little of the ground that we covered at the end of part one. That's, um, that's necessary um, for various reasons. It, it's amazing how much some portions of Scripture from how many different aspects you could speak on them and still not really feel satisfied that you've covered it thoroughly. So let me commence with this program. Satan is not in heaven. 
In Clifton M. Heiser's mailing this month, Clifton sent out my reply to the assertions of Don Spears and a program we did last July. Last July 1st, I believe, or, or June 30th, which had been presented here. My, my reply to, I think it was July 1st on a Saturday program, I did an evening with Don Spears. Don's a good guy. I don't have any animosity against him. We just have a serious agreement in this particular area, a serious disagreement. Well, you have some minor disagreements in other areas of Scripture, or, or at least I think they're only minor. Here we have a serious disagreement. And we did a program July 1st on the Christogenia Saturdays installment. And I really didn't, as I explained in my notes there, in, in response to that program, I was sitting in Don's home, and I didn't want to beat up on the guy and argue with him in his own home. So I replied at the foreword of my presentation on Luke chapter 8, last July 7th. Well, well since it, it's rather customary that Clifton send out to his, to his mailing list um, things that I write that he likes and, and this was one of them and, and that he finds useful and this was one of them and um, it's this topic's coming up again because this just happens to be the time that Clifton got around to mailing this paper out. Don Spears is a former Baptist pastor. His opinions on the issue generally reflect those which are held by Baptists on this matter. Unfortunately, very few people understand that once one comes to the truths of Christian identity and, and covenant theology and to see line, Christian identity at that, what we like to call to see line, one cannot put the new wine of these truths into old skins. Rather, one must put the new wine into new skins in order that the truth be maintained. The wine and the skins are both preserved. With this dispute in mind over whether or not Satan is in heaven, we will begin our presentation of the second part of Luke chapter 22 with some of that which we had left off with last week, with Luke 2231, and the admonishment of Peter by Christ. Simon, Simon, behold, the adversary demanded you for which to widow you as grain. But I, meaning Christ, Christ referring to himself, made supplication concerning you that your faith would not fail. And when you have turned about, you must strengthen your brethren. The Baptists would insist that the adversary, or Satan, of Luke chapter 22, verse 31, is a spirit demon. However, that is not necessarily the case. The precedent scripture, as I pointed out last week, with which to understand just what Peter was prevented from, is found in the story of Job in the Old Testament. Yet the Baptists would insist that the Satan of Job was also a spirit demon, and not a bodily one. They would then claim that this Satan had access to both 
heaven and to earth. And they reference the story of Jacob's ladder in order to justify that claim. Jacob's ladder is mentioned in Scripture only in Genesis chapter 28. And I will quote several verses from verse 10. And Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night because the sun was set. And he took of the stones of that place and put them for his pillows and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to heaven. And we shouldn't really take this literally, however, yet no, it is a dream. And behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And behold, Yahweh stood above it and said, I am Yahweh, God of Abraham thy father and the God of Isaac. The land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed. This is all a convenient explanation for the Baptists. However, it would only convince those who hear them but do not actually go back and read the accounts. In Genesis chapter 28, Jacob's ladder is described as being traversed by the angels of God, but not by the angels opposed to God, whose fall is described as having been in the distant past, where Satan is related to that old serpent, the serpent of the Garden of Genesis 3, as Christ himself explains in Revelation chapter 12. It cannot be taken for granted that satanic angels can traverse Jacob's ladder simply because Jacob saw such a vision of the angels of God traversing that ladder. The Revelation states that Satan and his angels were expelled from heaven, and neither was their place found anymore in heaven. The Baptists cannot even follow the King James Version. Never mind correct its many mistakes. since they're worshippers of the book and not the word. Job 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God, the sons of God are the children of Adam, Luke 3.38. The sons of God are walking up and down on the earth. Deuteronomy 14.1, Isaiah chapter 45. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh, and Satan came also among them. Satan, the adversary, a Satan. And Yahweh said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered Yahweh and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. And Yahweh said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that fears God and its Jews evil. Then Satan answered Yahweh and said, Does Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he has on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he has and he will curse thee to thy face. And Yahweh said unto Satan, Behold, all that he has is in my power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. 
So Satan went forth from the presence of Yahweh. The Satan of Job was clearly bound to the earth. When Yahweh asked that Satan where he had been, he stated that he had been walking upon the earth. And while the Satan was not necessarily a spirit demon, even the presence of spirit demons on the earth, which is quite clear in the New Testament, still does not put that Satan and those spirit demons in heaven. Some people would insist that, Job, that the Satan of Job had supernatural powers. It says fire from heaven fell upon Job's fields and sheep. It says that um, a whirlwind had come out of the desert and destroyed much of Job's family and property. But it doesn't say that Satan made the fire from heaven fall. It doesn't say that Satan made the whirlwind move against Job. In fact, in the subsequent verses, Yahweh tells Satan that Satan caused Yahweh to be moved against Job. So evidently those things came from God and not from Satan. Read the entire account. And you'll find that the explanations are not necessarily what we hear commonly from the mouths of the Baptists. And, and other Judeo-Christian sects. Note that Christ, note that Christ here refused to allow Peter to be handed over to the adversary, and that Christ made supplication concerning Peter that his, that Peter's faith would not fail. When our faith fails, we are ever more susceptible to sin. While it wasn't the case with Job, there were different reasons why Job was tested. And while like Job, we also may suffer, may suffer trials without necessarily having a sin to be punished for. Being sinners, we become easy victims for the enemies of our God. We fall victim to the panderers of all time. As Peter says in his first epistle, be sober, be alert. Your opponent, the devil, walks about as a roaring lion seeking someone to consume. Walks about just like that Satan back there in chapter 1 in Job was walking to and fro in the earth. Whom you must resist being solid in the faith knowing that you must be subject to the same things from the sufferings of your brotherhood in society. When Peter wrote that epistle, I don't think there were a lot of spirit demons that were torturing Christians. I think, as is evident from the histories of Tertullian and the Apology of Minucius Felix and the other early Christian writers, just as we see in the Acts of the Apostles and the Epistles of Paul, that it was the Jews who were persecuting Christians. It was the Jews causing those sufferings of the Christian brotherhood in society. Likewise, Paul tells us of the unrepentant sinner that we ought to put them out of our company 
to deliver such a wretch to the adversary or to Satan for destruction of the flesh in order that the spirit may be preserved in the day of the Lord, in the day of the prince. So we see that the Satans and the devils whom we must resist are those walking up and down upon the earth. Today they wear Armani suits and wingtips, carry briefcases. Not some invisible demons in heaven. Satan is here and Satan is real. All those opposed, all those created, contrary to the Lord of Yahweh our God, are basically Satan's. All the bastard children are basically Satan's. All of those who descended from the ancient Canaanites and Edomites and Kenites of Scripture, they are basically Satan's. Collectively, they are Satan. Arab and Jew alike. As well as many of the other races, if not all. It being manifest in apocryphal literature, but also in scripture, that Yahweh did not create them. That they are the progeny of the first rebels and the fallen angels. As I wrote that opinion in Broken Cisterns Part 2 in 2004, Broken Cisterns being among the works that former um, co-workers of mine who are now my adversaries claim to have read and to have appreciated. Luke 22, verse 33. Then he said to him, Prince, I am ready to go with you even into prison and to death. But he said, meaning Christ, I say to you, Petrus, Peter, today a cock shall not crow until you have denied me three times, until you have denied knowing me three times. As we discussed last week, poor Peter, I'm always picking on Peter, I don't mean to. It's the scripture that really picks on Peter. As we discussed here last week, on at least one occasion, Christ indicated to Peter what was the will of God. And in turn, Peter argued with Christ in the road. For that, he was called a Satan by Christ, which is described in Matthew 4.10. Satan with a small s. He was being adversarial to Christ, therefore he was an adversary. Arguing against the will of God, one becomes an adversary to God, for which, is, for which the Hebrew word is Satan, adversary. Those Satans with a capital S, the perpetual adversaries of God, the seed of the serpent, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, all of their descendants, because they transmit those same rebellious genetics, those same perverted, corrupted genes from generation to generation, they are another matter entirely. Peter's lesson. Peter must learn, and, and there are many Peters in the world today, and, and we'll discuss them later on. Peter must learn that fate... Many Christians don't like the word fate, but 
if we understand the word fate properly, it's not a bad word. Fate is in God's hands and not in the hands of man. For that reason, man must seek to follow the will of God. Since striving to follow one's own will leads to the fact that one's route to one's destination will be all the more difficult. The story of Jonah is a good place to learn that. For Jonah had the opportunity to go to Nineveh the easy way, as Yahweh had first commanded him, get on a camel or in a chariot. And when Jonah resisted, he ended up making that same journey. He still ended up in Nineveh, but he ended up in Nineveh under quite difficult circumstances. Now, of course, that too resulted in advancing the glory of God. However, it was a lot more difficult for Jonah. And even though God foresaw what Jonah would do, it was Jonah who made the decision to flee to Tarshish rather than simply go to Nineveh, as he was told in the first place. As I elucidated last week, Christ called Simon the son of Jonah, which is Peter's original name. He called him Petrus, or stone, right from the beginning. Actually, the Hebrew word is kephas, K-E-P-H-A-S, I believe it's spelled several times in the Acts and the letters of Paul. That's the Hebrew term for stone. Christ labeled that upon Peter right from the beginning, as it is attested to in John 1.42. This may well have been because Peter, as he has come to be known, was the most stubborn of the apostles. Peter needed to suffer many things three times before he understood them. This is evident where he is told that he would deny Yahshua Christ three times. And in the last chapter of John, where Christ admonishes him to feed his sheep three times, and again in Acts chapter 10, where Peter had to see the vision of the sheep three times, and once more, as I, I, I kind of realized today, making preparing the notes for this program, <laughs> Peter was admonished for falling asleep three times by Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, while Christ was praying. Three times Christ came back to him and found him sleeping and admonished him. So we see Peter went through many things three times, most likely because he never got things the first time. Verse 35, and, and I might be Peter sometimes, and a lot of us are Peter sometimes, stubborn and sick-headed, or rock-headed like a stone. which I'm certain is why Christ applied that label to Peter. Verse 35. Said to them, When I sent you without purse and wallet and sandals, did you have want of anything? And they said nothing. Then he said to them, But now he having a purse must take it, and likewise a wallet. And he not having a sword must sell his garment and buy one. 
We see in Luke 10, chapter 4, where Christ had sent the disciples out to the various villages to announce the gospel. That he instructed those disciples, do not carry a bag, nor a wallet, nor sandals, and greet no one by the road. When Christ walked the earth, he instructed his apostles that they would have need of not, that they would have need of nothing. Yet here, when he was going to be taken from the earth, he foresaw their persecution. There's no other explanation for this. And he instructed them that they had better make provisions for themselves. We also see that he expected them to be able to defend themselves, that he not having a sword must sell his garment and buy one. And we will discuss that at length later. Or we will discuss it again later. Verse 37. For I say to you that it is necessary, the majority text has yet necessary, for the scripture to be fulfilled in me, that also he was reckoned with the lawless. For even that which concerns me, meaning Christ, has an end. That word, end, the Greek word, telos, T-E-L-O-S, is an end, and alternatively it may have been rendered a result or a consummation. The statement uttered by Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, which we just read, is only recorded in Luke. Perhaps it was on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. The scripture quoted is from Isaiah 53, 12. All of Isaiah chapter 53 is a messianic prophecy which spells out the purpose of the passion of the Christ. I've repeated it before when presenting the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. I will repeat it again here. Being reckoned with the lawless, we see that Christ was executed along with common criminals in fulfillment of the passage, Isaiah 53, 12. I'll read Isaiah chapter 53 from verse 1 and offer some comments. Who has believed our report, and to whom is the arm of Yahweh revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and is a root out of a dry ground. He has no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. 
And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We can't imagine looking at the New Testament that the word of God can be broken and that this has anything to do with anyone who is not originally one of these sheep who had gone astray, one of these people who were under the law. The redemption in Christ is only for the genetic children of Israel. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the society, the Israelite society. And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. That word generation in verse 8. For our sentence often translated that word as race. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death because he had done no violence neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased Yahweh to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When thou shalt make an offering for sin, when thou shalt make his soul or his life an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. Christ didn't have any children. He shall prolong his days. Christ is Yahweh come in the flesh. All of the children of Adam are his children. And the pleasure of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he has poured out his soul unto death, And he was numbered with the transgressors, the portion of this passage which Christ repeats in reference to himself here in Luke. And he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Nowhere does it ever state that he made intercession for anybody else. Isaiah chapter 53 plainly dispels any notions of universalism, which can only be maintained by taking certain New Testament passages out of context. Most Judeo sects not even understanding the historical context of Scripture. And misapplying them to people or entities to whom they do not belong. 
The passion of Christ was only for the benefit of the genetic children of Israel who were the transgressors of the old covenant. Paul tells the Galatians, for example, in chapter 4 of his epistle, and when the fulfillment of the time had come, Yahweh had dispatched his son, having been born of a woman, having been subject to law, in order that he would redeem those subject to law. That we, meaning we who are those subject to the old covenant law, that we would recover, recover the position of sons. Well, Luke 3.38 reveals that all of the children of Adam are children of God, and that is true. Throughout the Old Testament, only the children of Israel are granted the position, the acknowledgement as being the children of God. Isaiah 45, Deuteronomy 14.1. Paul tells the Galatians later in that same chapter, and we, brethren, down through Isaac, those who descended from Isaac, are children of promise. The Galatians were descended from the Israelites of the Assyrian deportations. All of Paul's letters prove in one way or another that they were indeed addressed to those genetic children of Israel, those of the early dispersions of Israel, the sheep that went astray, mentioned in Isaiah 53.6. Paul never addresses any people outside of that context, as, which is explained in Galatians, except on one occasion. On only one occasion, Paul addresses non-Israelites. And that one occasion is Acts chapter 17, where, being in Athens, Paul is actually addressing Jephethites. Jephethites who were descended from that Javan mentioned in Genesis 10.4. The progenitor of the Ionian Greeks, it can be proven beyond doubt from Persian inscriptions, such as the Behistun rock, and from the Septuagint that Javan identifies the Ionian Greeks, that they are Jephethites who inhabited the coast of, Mediterranean, of the Mediterranean Sea, just like Genesis chapter 10 states that the sons of Jephethites would inhabit those coasts. The words of Paul's epistle, um, I'm sorry, the words of Paul's address to the men of Athens in Acts chapter 17 proves that. He never talks to them in the context of redemption. He never talks to them about the law. He never talks to them about anything relating to Israel. What does he do? He makes a citation about all of the children of Adam coming from about all of the children of God coming from one, meaning Adam. And Acts 17.26 is a reference to Deuteronomy 32.8 when Yahweh separated the sons of Adam 
he left the, the, the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. And that's a reference, in turn, to the division of the earth, which is seen in Genesis chapter 11. In Peleg's day, the earth was divided. In Peleg's day, the land was split up according to the tribes, as is described in Genesis chapter 10. That's what's being referenced in Deuteronomy 32.8. That's what's being referenced in Acts 17.26. And all those people were white. It can be demonstrated in history and archaeology that all those people were originally white. Now, many of them have been overrun and mixed since then, so they're not white anymore. They're bastards. As Yahweh said to the children of Israel, I gave Ethiopia and Egypt up for you. Well, we see in verse 36 here in Luke, let's get back to Luke chapter 22. That was a long digression. Well, we see in verse 36 that Christ had warned the apostles that they would have to provide for and defend themselves. We see in verse 37 that the trial and crucifixion of Christ, here where he cited Isaiah 53:12, is inevitable. And although he stated it to them plainly, the apostles still did not quite understand. Therefore, in the subsequent verse, 38, we see a statement that reflects a belief in their minds that a need for self-defense was imminent, was immediate. Verse 38 from Luke chapter 22. And they said to him, Prince, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, that is sufficient. But what were the two swords sufficient for? The disciples could not have fought off the coming mob of priests and officers and soldiers of the temple and those who accompanied them with two swords, at least not without divine intervention. Yet, it's totally evident that such intervention was not forthcoming. For Christ had told them that it was his destiny to be numbered among the transgressors, as he had just quoted from Isaiah. And he explains to the apostles later upon his seizure, when Peter attempts to use one of those swords, To prevent his being taken, he explains to them that all the things written concerning him had to be fulfilled and that they were not to use the sword. And we'll discuss that again as we get to that section of Luke chapter 22. The words of Christ concerning One's need for a sword and the two swords present here were to serve as yet another lesson 
that while we indeed have a need and we have a God-given right to be able to defend ourselves, yet if we strike the enemies of our God prematurely, as we shall see that Peter attempts to do, we shall fail because vengeance belongs to God. And before God takes vengeance, his word must first be fulfilled. And we will explain that further as this evening progresses. Verse 39. And departing he went, as customary, to the Mount of Olives, the Gospels of Matthew and Mark aren't entirely clear that this discourse is on the road to the Mount of Olives. However, they had already departed the hall where they held the Feast of Passover before these words were, were exchanged between Christ and the Apostles. That's the reason for some of my own confusion, because the Gospels aren't really, they don't conflict with each other, but the different accounts aren't really clear about where the words were uttered. Reading Luke alone, one might think that those words were all uttered in the hall where the feast was. However, the other Gospels tell us that he had already departed for the Mount of Olives when the words were uttered, speaking about Matthew and Mark. There's a phrase here that has to be explained. And they and the students followed him, is what it reads in the Christogenian New Testament. And departing, he went as customary to the Mount of Olives, and they and the students followed him. They insinuates the apostles, and the students insinuates perhaps other disciples of Christ. The Codex Vaticanus wants the word and. And so the word they, which is read only because the verb appears in the third person plural, would also be omitted. So the reading of the Codex Vaticanus would be, and the students followed him. In other words, the apostles alone, and not both the apostles and the rest of whatever students were there. It may be debated whether there were only 12 with Christ at the Passover and at the Garden of Gethsemane. Perhaps I should pronounce that Gethsemane. I'm not, uh, I'm not clear, but the Greek would be Gethsemane. It's not really clear whether there were only 12 or whether there were 12 and also others. And the manuscripts are divided. Some of the manuscripts had the word 12 before the word apostles in verses 14 and 30 of this chapter. But none of those which have that word in either place are consistent in both places. 
The Christogenian New Testament follows what I believe of the older, more reliable manuscripts, which do not have the word 12 in either of those places. The King James Version has the word 12 in both places. The American Standard Version only has the word 12 in verse 30. Both of those versions in this verse, verse 39, follow the Codex Vaticanus here, having only, and the disciples followed him. The Gospel of Mark seems to support the Christogenia reading here, where in Mark chapter 14, verses 50 through 52, it is explained that there was a certain young man who was not one of the twelve, but who had also been following along with Christ, so that we see there were, well, there was at least one other person following Christ besides the twelve. And that that man was present in the garden when he was seized. Many have speculated that that man was Mark himself, which is a strong possibility. The reading of the Christogenian New Testament where it says here, and they and the students followed him, is the reading of the Novum Testamentum Grece, the NA27, the 27th edition of Nestle Land, based on the preponderance of the other ancient manuscripts. Verse 40. And having arrived at the place, he said to them, you must pray not to enter into trial. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and kneeling he prayed, saying, Father, if you wish, turn this cup away from me. But it is not my desire, rather it must be yours. The will of God must be fulfilled. Christ is God come in the flesh, but everything that he says and does in his earthly ministry is an example for us. He comes as a man, he acts like a man, and prays to God. Psalm 16.5 Yahweh is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou art he that restores my inheritance to me. Psalm 116.13 I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of Yahweh. Christ fulfills these scriptures here. This prayer in the garden demonstrates how quickly Yahshua accepted the word of God. Since his circumstances had not changed in a short period of time, he tells us that he must proceed and allow himself to face the coming hardship, his crucifixion. He does that as an example for us. And that will also be discussed shortly. Verses 43 and 44 are omitted in the Christogenian New Testament. They are not found in the 3rd century papyrus P75. They are not found in the codices Alexandrinus, Vaticanus, or Washingtonensis. The codexes Alexandrinus and Washingtonensis are from the 5th century. The Codex Vaticanus is from the 4th century. They are not found in another 5th century manuscript, the Codex Borgianus. Don't ask me why it was named for the Borgias. The verses are found in the Codex Sinaiticus, 
fourth century, and in the Codex Beze of the fifth century, and in another fourth century codex. Actually, this codex is dated to circa 300 AD and known only by its number, to my knowledge, 0171 Codex or Great Uncial 0171. The verses are also found in the majority text. Because of the ages of these manuscripts on both sides of the issue, this reveals an early and very distinct division of the manuscripts. Because P75, the papyrus P75, which also dates to around 300 AD, and the codexes Vaticanus and Washingtonensis cannot claim any greater antiquity than the codexes 171 and Sinaiticus, so far as the generally accepted data provided by the NA27, the Nestle Land Novum Testamentum Greca, determines. Yet, because the verses are wanting in so many early manuscripts, for the time being, until I have more evidence, if, if we are ever afforded more evidence, I must deem these verses to be spurious. The Novum Testamentum Greca includes the verses, but marks them as questionable. Therefore, I will provide a translation of them without comment. Verses 43 and 44, which I've omitted from the Christian New Testament for reason that a fair number, an equal portion of the oldest manuscripts have them omitted, and therefore I believe they were added and leaked into the other half of the manuscripts. That's my personal opinion. Verses 43 and 44 would be translated. And there appeared to him a messenger from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more intensely. And his tears were as drops of blood going down upon the earth. Verse 45. And rising up from prayer, coming to the students, he found them having fallen asleep out of grief. And he said to them, why do you sleep? Arising, you must pray that you not enter into trial. While Luke only offers us a very abbreviated record of this account, in fact, he only offers us these two verses, in Matthew chapter 26, verses 41 through 45, and in Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 42, we see that it was actually three times that having taken a few apostles near where he was praying, Christ had returned to them and found them sleeping. Of those few apostles who were Peter and James and John, not James, the brother of Christ, but James, the son of Zebedee and his brother John. Of those few apostles, only Peter is directly admonished for sleeping. 
as both the Gospels of Matthew and Mark record. Therefore, once again, we see that Peter had to undergo an experience three times in addition to his thrice denial of Christ, in addition to his thrice being told to feed his sheep in John chapter 21, and in addition to his thrice having to have been shown the vision of the sheep in Acts chapter 10. Peter must have been the thick-headed apostle. (laughs) Not that we can't all be thick-headed. It is clear in Scripture that not only our own prayers, but the prayers of our brethren on our behalf can keep us from trial. Pray that you not enter into trial. As we discussed already, discussing Luke chapters, chapter 22, verses 31 and 32 here, Christ had said to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, the adversary demanded you for which to winnow you his grain. But I made supplication concerning you that your faith would not fail. And when you have turned about, you must strengthen your brethren. As Paul also says in Romans 12.12, Christians should be rejoicing in expectation, persevering in afflictions. We're going to have trials of some sort. We're not going to go through life unscathed. And firmly persisting in prayer, but not making a public show of it. James says in the fifth chapter of his epistle, and the prayer of the faith shall save the afflicted, and the prince shall raise him, speaking of men who have fallen ill in the assembly. And if a sin may have been committed, it shall be remitted for him. Therefore acknowledge sins to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The entreaty of the righteous being employed prevails much. We can intercede for our beloved brethren. And we pray for them that they not enter into trial. And we pray for ourselves that we ourselves do not enter into trial. Persistent prayer keeps us from sin. A lapse of prayer and the mind wanders away from God and towards the things of the world. All of a sudden, you end up with football tickets and in a movie theater, absorbing all the Jew filth that spews out of the screen. All of the things which Christ did while he walked the earth, he did for our example. That's how Christ, being God manifest in flesh, can pray to God the Father. He did it for our example that we may follow after him. While speaking of washing the feet of the disciples, it also carries through to everything which he did on our behalf. Where he says in John chapter 13, verses 15 and 16, For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. 
Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. And therefore, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.21-24, For even hereunto were ye called, this is the King James Version, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously, to the will of God, not to Pilate to God and God's will as we see here in the garden Christ praying that it can't be my will it must be yours by whose stripes ye are healed another reference to the messianic prophecy of Isaiah 53 Luke 22 verse 47 we will finish this chapter tonight. While he was yet speaking, behold, a crowd, and he who is called Judas, the codices Beze and O171 here both have Judas Iscariot, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them, and he approached Joshua to kiss him. But Joshua said to him, Judas, you betrayed the son of man with a kiss. The Judas kiss is since become famous. Several of the conspirators in the murder of Julius Caesar were said by Plutarch to have first kissed him. Shakespeare made a thing of that in his plays, I believe. There was one incident in the Old Testament where Joab had grabbed the beard of Amasa to kiss him. Evidently, that was a Hebrew custom. And instead of kissing him, he thrust a sword into his ribs with his other hand. That's in 2 Samuel. Chapter 20. Now the Codex Beze inserts at the end of verse 47 something the other codices don't have. The parenthetical remark, for this sign, for he gave this sign to them. Whoever I shall kiss is he. Now, similar words do belong in the account, as it is recorded by both Matthew and Mark, but are not in the other codices in Luke. Verse 49. And they who were around him, seeing that which would be, said, Prince, Shall we smite with the sword? And he smote a certain one of them, a servant of the high priest, and took off his right ear. Then replying, Yahshua said, Allow this for now. And touching his ear, he healed him. This part of the account, as it is related by Matthew, reads thusly from Matthew twenty six fifty one. And behold, one of those with Yahshua, extending the hand, drew his sword, and smiting the servant of the high priest, took off his ear. Then Yahshua says to him, Return your sword into its place, 
For all those taking the sword shall be destroyed by the sword. Or do you suppose that I am not able to summon my father, and he shall have come to me now over twelve legions of angels? Then how would the writings be fulfilled that thusly it is necessary to happen? Christ was supposed to be seized, dragged through kangaroo trials, and crucified. That's what the writings state. Mark only has this episode in a single sentence saying that a certain one of those who stood nearby drawing the sword smote the servant to the high priest and took off his ear. Mark 14.47. Mark's account is even more concise than Luke's is here. Possibly because Mark is recording the event from the words of Peter. Only in the Gospel of John do we find that the man who did this deed was Peter, where it says in John 18 from verse 10, Then Simon Petrus, having a sword, drew it and struck the servant to the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Malchus was the name of the servant. Therefore Yahshua said to Peter, Put the sword into its sheath. The cup which the Father gave me to drink, shall I not drink it? Now the four different versions are from at least four different perspectives. And it is evident that putting all of them together, we may approach a complete understanding of the entire event. Yahshua Christ indeed warned the apostles that they would have to defend themselves. And therefore, he uttered the words, He not having a sword must sell his garment and buy one. Luke 22.36 But those words were not in reference to immediate events, since he also warned them that he would be taken and crucified in accordance with the scriptures. Yet the apostles still imagining, not understanding the scriptures, and still imagining that need for defense to be immediate, pointed out that they had two swords, and Christ replied only that that is sufficient, Luke twenty-two thirty-eight. Here we see that Peter's fleshly urges again took control of his actions. And not understanding the word of God, in spite of having heard it from God himself. Peter imagined that he, by his own means, could save his Lord from that fate which was already destined, a fate which had been decreed by the word of God in the writings of the prophets, which Christ often repeated to him. The lesson here is that while men have their own fleshly will. The word of God shall be fulfilled in spite of the will of men. Vengeance belongs to Yahweh, and men cannot take it into their own hands. Christ having to die, Peter trying to prevent that failed, and he was then admonished by Christ. And then, even that enemy of God, whom Peter injured, contrary to the will of God, 
was healed by God himself. Christ healed the ear of the servant of the high priest, which Peter smote. So what were the two swords sufficient for? The two swords were sufficient that we may learn that very lesson. And such is the predicament that we find ourselves in today. So many men, patriots, Christian patriots, white nationalists, identity Christians, so many men, while understanding the nature of God's enemies and what is good and what is evil, desire to take vengeance against God's enemies by their own hands. They want to be Peter. But they fail, and all who try will continue to fail, because vengeance does indeed belong to God, as it is written, because only God himself can save us, as it is written, and because the word of God must first be fulfilled, as it is written. As an aside, the statement in Matthew, which I cited above, for all those taking the sword shall be destroyed by the sword, is too often taken out of context. Its application is not for all future time. And plenty have picked up the sword appropriately or out of compulsion and have gone on to live long lives thereafter. Rather, the statement is a statement for this place and time. To inform us that the will of Yahweh must be carried out, even when it is not of any immediately apparent benefit. Also, to inform us of the fate of his enemies. Joshua didn't want Peter to take the sword because the word of God had to be fulfilled. In reality, all those taking the sword who shall be destroyed by the sword refers to those of his enemies who have him surrounded here. They were the ones taking the sword against him. They were going to be destroyed by the sword, and they were in the destruction of Jerusalem some years later. And perhaps many of them were destroyed along the way. Vengeance belongs to Yahweh alone, and all those who take the sword unrighteously against his will shall be rewarded in kind. Such is also why the first verse of Daniel chapter 12 reads thus, and I will read it, and I'll make a short comparison to modern history. And at that time, speaking of the end days, and at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which stands for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since, since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. The name Michael is a Hebrew phrase, often interpreted as a question which means, who is like God? If a man stands up 
and a lot of my enemies are going to love this comparison. A man, for instance, such as Adolf Hitler, who, as a Christian, had his entire Christian nation behind him in opposition to world Jewry. If such a man stands up and tries to execute the vengeance of God for himself, then he is destined to fail. It is my opinion that Adolf Hitler did indeed represent the Michael of Daniel chapter 12, although he may have only been one Michael among several candidates in recent history. When Germany fought to free itself of the shackles of world Jewry, there was indeed a time of trouble such as never been seen before. Sixty million people died, most of them white Christians. Vengeance belongs to Yahweh, and that is why Germany failed. Germany, as a nation, was a modern-day Peter. Adolf Hitler was a modern-day Michael. He didn't know it. He thought he was doing the right thing. He believed he was doing the right thing. And indeed, he was doing the right thing. But he didn't know what was written in the book. He didn't know that it was not his lot to remove Satan from his nation. Vengeance belongs to Yahweh. Germany was destined to fail. And that is why anyone today who attempts to push his hand, any man who out of fleshly desire attempts to push his hand to free us from those same shackles of world Jewry, shall also fail until all things written in the word of God are accomplished. There's no way around it. There was no way around it for Christ, and there, was, there is today no way around it for us. 25 Hundred years ago, actually closer to 3,000, our ancestors had a choice, like Jonah, to do things the easy way and obey God, or not to do things the easy way and be dragged to their destination the hard way. So it is today that we suffer their decision. Of course, God foresaw that. Yahweh being God foresaw that. But that doesn't mean that they didn't have a choice, and they certainly did. So Christians have every right to defend themselves. And he who does not have a sword must sell his cloak and buy one. But it is not our lot at this time to take that sword against God's enemies. And that's what these scriptures fully demonstrate.
And Yahshua said to those coming for him, to the high priests and officers of the temple and elders, as for a robber, you have come out with swords and clubs. That word strategos, officers here, officers of the temple here. That word strategos is the leader of a commander of an army or a general. So we see the, the, the distinguished position which is connected to the word. And also, according to Liddell and Scott and other lexicographers, it's the word which designated an officer who had custody of the temple at Jerusalem. Apparently, the word here was used of at least several men. I have to make a note that one Edomite trait is a love for creating many bureaucratic offices and filling them with cronies. That's the reason for the exceedingly high taxes in those states, which are most infested with Jews today. We see there were lots of officers of the temple, and they all had that, that distinguished title of strategus, or general, as it's usually translated in the profane histories. Verse 53, on each day of my being with you in the temple, you did not extend a hand upon me, but this is your hour and the authority of darkness. As we discussed last week, even though the high priests professed a desire not to slay him on the feast day, Christ announces that this is their hour in the authority of darkness. It's the will of God that he was slain on the Passover. And the high priests, even though they desired not to do it, they still did it on the Passover because Christ was the Lamb of God. Their actions, they had no choice. They had no real control. God was in control. The authority of darkness. There's a myriad of scriptures that can be cited. Proverbs 4.19, the way of the wicked is as darkness. They know not at what they stumble. Isaiah 42.16, a messianic prophecy. And I, will, and I will bring the blind by a way that they knew not. I will lead them in paths that they have not known. This is in response to the, the, the utterance of Yahweh, who is blind but my servant in relation to the children of Israel. I will make darkness light before them and crooked things straight. These things will I do unto them and not forsake them. The children of Israel of the New Testament are the children of Israel of the Old Testament. John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. And in him, in Christ, was the life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness comprehends it not. John must have been thinking about this night in the Garden of Gethsemane when he wrote that. Christ is the light of the world, John 8:12. Then again, Yahshua spoke to them, saying, 
I am the light of the society. He following me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Colossians chapter 1, the words of Paul. Being thankful for the Father who qualifies us for that share of the inheritance of the saints in light. The same saints as those of the Old Testament. Who has rescued us from the authority of darkness. The princes of this world. And instead gave us into the kingdom of his son in love in whom we have redemption. Paul defines redemption here. The dismissal of sins. That's one definition. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, so that you should proclaim the virtues from which for which from out of darkness you have been called into the wonder of his light. Christ is our only light. So turn off your television. Revelation twenty two sixteen. I, Yahshua, have sent my messenger to attest these things to you for the assemblies. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. Christ is our light and the Jews are darkness. All of the antichrists are darkness. Christians should steer clear of them always. Light, Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, has no concord with darkness. When are Christians going to get it? Verse 54. Then seizing him, they took and led him into the house of the high priest. And Petrus, Peter, followed at a distance. From the Gospel of John, we learn, among many other things, that both John and Peter followed Christ to the house of the high priest. From both Matthew chapter 26 and Mark chapter 14, not mentioned here, we learn that the scribes and elders had already been gathered there, and therefore they must have been anticipating the arrest and trial of Christ. It being the middle of the night, it's not quite normal to gather. From Matthew and Mark, we also see that this house was the house of the high priest Caiaphas. Luke leaves the high priest's unnamed in this instance. John's version of this account is more complete in several other respects. There John also explains that they first brought Yahshua to Annas, Annas being the father-in-law of Caiaphas and the former high priest himself. And only then did they bring him to Caiaphas. Verse 55. And upon their igniting a fire in the midst of the court and sitting together, Peter sat amidst them, and seeing him, a certain maidservant, sitting by the light and staring at him, said, He also was with him. But he denied it, saying, 
I do not know him, woman. And after a while, another seeing him said, You also are from among them. But Peter said, Not I, man. And an interval of about one hour passing, a certain other confidently affirmed, saying, By truth, he also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. At Matthew twenty six seventy three, it is recorded as having been said to Peter, that truly you also are from among them, for even your speech makes you conspicuous. And therefore in Matthew it is shown that the Galileans were distinct from the people of Jerusalem. Verse 60. But Peter said, Man, I do not know that which you say. And immediately upon his speaking... A cock crowed. Then turning, the prince looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the prince as he had said to him, that before a cock crows today, three times, you shall deny me. And going outside, he wept bitterly. We see that Peter deny Christ three times, just as Christ told him that we would, that he would, in spite of Peter's own assertions that he would never do such a thing. How many of us, when confronted by the world, would forsake or even deny the true message of Scripture in order to maintain our comfort in the world? Many of us, even those of us who should know better, those who claim to be identity Christians, regularly do just that with little realization that we've done it. Every time we want to get comfortable with the world rather than follow Scripture, we are basically denying Christ. Peter, the proud man, wept bitterly because when he boasted that he would follow Christ even unto death, Christ told him what would happen, that he would deny him three times. And in spite of that warning, Peter denied him anyway. Likewise, we all sin, even in spite of the warnings of the consequences. Therefore, we should be humble when judging the sins of our brethren. Don't imagine your fellow Israelite. Don't imagine your, your racial kinsman going into the lake of fire. For as you judge, you shall be judged. And the scripture says, all Israel shall be saved. The events where Peter denied Christ took place at various times over the course of the trial of Yahshua before the priest. That's very evident from that paragraph, right? Therefore, the different gospel writers placed it at different points in the narrative. For instance, Luke records the denials of Peter and the events of the trial of Christ in nearly the opposite order which Matthew and Mark record them. Due to the nature of the narrative, None of the gospel accounts can honestly be esteemed to be inaccurate. Verse 63. 
And the men encompassing him, the men encompassing Christ, mocked him, flailing and covering him over, were questioning him, saying, Prophecy, who is he striking you? And they spoke many other blasphemies to him. Their challenge here for him to prophecy indicates that he was indeed accredited with the ability to do such things as a matter of his reputation. Verse 66. And his day had come. The elders of the people gathered with both high priests and scribes, and they brought him to their council. That word Sanhedrin, it's not council in the King James Version. It's Sanhedrin, I believe. Here the word council is the Greek word sunedrion. It's a Greek compound word. It's used by classical writers such as Xenophon and Polybius many centuries before the New Testament era. Xenophon was, um, he lived around 400 B.C. He was writing up until around probably 360 B.C., maybe 350 B.C. The word is derived from the component Greek word sun, which means with or together, and hedra, which is a seat or a sitting. Therefore, we have sun edrion. In context, the word clearly should be translated as council, just as it is in the classics. It is silly to merely render the word with the corrupt transliteration Sanhedrin, which is a non-word in English, regardless of whether it is used by the Jews for their own purposes. There's a point to this. Soon Adrian only appears this one time in Luke, but over a dozen times in Acts, and also appears in Matthew, Mark, and John. And the point is that I must comment that it is odd that many of today's Jews downplay or even refuse to admit the Greek influence in Judea. And they insist that Judeans only spoke Aramaic. Yet the Jews willingly and commonly identify key elements of their own religion with Greek words. Two of the outstanding ones being Sanhedrin and synagogue. They're Greek words. Sanhedrin is not a Hebrew word. It never was. It's a perversion of the Greek word, sunhedrion, which means council. It was never for one minute a Hebrew word. It's a compound Greek word made from two smaller Greek words. It's absolutely 100% Greek. If the Jews in Palestine only spoke Aramaic, what are they doing with the Greek word to describe their council? 
Synagogue is a Greek word. Soon, ago, days. Soon meaning with. Ago meaning to lead or to gather. Gates meaning ground. There are three Greek words to give us the compound word, which we pronounce in English as synagogue. Sunagoge. Sunagoge is a Greek word made from three Greek words. It's the Judeans didn't speak Greek, but only spoke Aramaic, as many Jews like to, like to claim. It's a ridiculous claim, but they claim it. Why are these words so important to the Jewish faith? Why are they Greek words? Why aren't they Hebrew words? The hypocrisy of the Jew is endless. The Judeans, they spoke Greek. Most of them were bilingual, but they spoke Greek. Verse 67. This is a continuation of verse 66, so I'll, I'll reread 66. And as day had come, the elders of the people gathered with both the high priest and scribes, and they brought him to their council, saying, verse 67, saying, if you are the Christ, tell us. And he said to them, if I should tell you, you shall not believe it. And if I shall ask, by no means will you answer. But from this time, the Son of Man shall be sitting at the right hand of the power of Yahweh. There's no claim there concerning himself, right? None whatsoever. But first, let's see some of the scriptures that he, that, that Christ refers to with that statement. <clears throat> Psalm 110, verse 1. Yahweh said unto my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I shall make thine enemies thy footstool. Daniel 7.13 I saw in night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. 1 Enoch, chapter 1, verse 9 And behold, he comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all, and to destroy all the ungodly, and to convict all flesh of all the works of their ungodliness, which they have ungodly committed. Ungodly is a verb there, I guess, or an ad adverb. And of all the hard things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Luke chapter 2, verse 70. I'm sorry, Luke chapter 22, verse 70. Then they all said, So you are the son of Yahweh. And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further witness do we have need of? For we have heard these things from his mouth. And actually, they never heard them from his mouth, right? Yahshua answers, You say that I am. Agreeing with the question without answering it so that the only testimony belongs to his accusers. He did not state in his reply that he was. However, he made them state it. He took their question and asserted to them that it served as a testimony. The insinuation by the priest that it was blasphemy con to consider oneself 
a son of God, when in fact the scriptures have it quite the contrary, that the children of Israel are indeed the children of Yahweh God. While it was a special connotation relating to the Messiah, evident in Isaiah 7.14, that a, a virgin would conceive, and he would be called Emmanuel, or God walks with us. God is with us. While there was a special connotation relating to the Messiah in claiming to be the Son of God, any man of Israel could rightfully claim to be a Son of God. Therefore, there was no merit to these charges of the high priests. Deuteronomy 14.1, ye are the children of Yahweh your God. You shall not cut yourselves, nor make any baldness between your eyes for the dead. Isaiah 45.11, thus saith Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel and his maker, Ask me of things to come concerning my sons, and concerning the work of my hands command ye me. So we see that the charges of the priests are totally false. They had no basis at all. It was a kangaroo court. Just like most of the courts that the Jews hold today. The Nuremberg trials. The federal court system today. I'm not saying everybody in federal court is innocent, but they commonly hold kangaroo courts. And there's a long list of examples that we can give where they put their political opponents away unjustly. That is all for tonight. I thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. I will be here tomorrow night with Sword Brethren. We're going to have a conversation about Christian nationalism and Christian socialism. And yes, we will be talking about National Socialist Germany in conjunction with those ideas. I will be here next week on Friday with Luke chapter 23. Good night and thank you all. God bless you all. Yeah. Mm-hmm.